Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to uh, New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Rimarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Alan Horvitz about his new book, DSM, A History of Psychiatry's Bible. Over the past 70 years, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, has evolved from a virtually unknown and little-used pamphlet to an imposing and comprehensive compendium of mental disorders. Its nearly 300 conditions have become the touchstones for the diagnosis that patients receive, students are taught, researchers study, insurers reimburse, and drug companies promote. In DSM, Alan Horvitz examines how the manual, known colloquially as Psychiatry's Bible, has been at the center of thinking about mental health in the United States since its original publication in 1952. This comprehensive treatment should appeal to not only specialists, but also anyone who is interested in how diagnoses of mental illness have evolved over the past seven decades from unwanted and often imposed labels to resources that led to valued mental health treatments and social services. I can't see or hear you. Well, Alan, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thanks. It's very good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global pandemic recently, I was wondering if we could start with you reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and perhaps the main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience? Well, I think I've had a very unusual experience because, you know, I I, um, haven't been going out as much. I certainly haven't been traveling as much. So I've really had more time to spend on my work. So I'm getting actually more done, I think, um, in the past uh, year and a half or so than I have previously. That's interesting. So you're traveling much less. Do you think you're going to keep these habits uh, after as well? Well, I hope not. Um, I have uh, <laughs> you know, three kids and there's you know, two of them are on the West Coast in Los Angeles and in Portland, Oregon. Um, so I miss seeing them. Um, so I, I do hope to be you know, flying again. Yes, for sure. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, well, I've um, I think really been in the area of the sociology of mental illness for a very long time now. I uh, started in graduate school as a very naive uh, 22-year-old and um, was so naive that I didn't even apply for uh, financial aid when I got 
to um, uh, Yale University, um, the head of the program, who you know, I thought looked ancient to me, although he's um, was then younger than I am now, um, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, asked me to come to his office. He says, oh, I see you have some interest in studying, you know, mental illness, we have a fellowship we haven't used. Would you be interested in taking it? And I said, sure. Um, so I uh, really studied uh, psychiatric epidemiology there and uh, did my doctoral dissertation looking at how people came to seek psychiatric help. That is, I wasn't so much interested in the actual problems they had as to how they responded to their problems. And I had free access to their files, which is something you would never get today. Um, and I think for, for very good reason, a number of them were either you know, children or spouses of my own professors. So that was a little awkward. Um, but the one thing that in retrospect, I noticed was that diagnoses were just not an important aspect of the problems, uh, uh, how they were labeled. Um, many of the files had no diagnoses at all. Sometimes they were sort of an afterthought that what was it, it really primary was you know, their marital difficulties or difficulties with parents, with jobs, with the emotions they had, but they weren't given a, um, a diagnosis. It just was not an important consideration at the time. So then you fast forward about you know, 10 years you know, that when the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical um, Manual, the DSM, was then going to go into its third edition, all of a sudden diagnoses became primary. That, you know, that was the first thing that a psychiatrist or some other mental health professional would do is, well, what diagnosis that does this person have? So I thought this was just exceedingly strange. How could this change go about um, in such a short period of time when diagnoses were almost non-existent to being at the very center of um, psychiatric practice. And I've sort of been writing about that ever since. Oh, this is fascinating. So you were exposed to this treasure trove of data early on, were you? Uh, yes, that's, that's correct. Data without diagnoses. <laughs> So what roles did your mentors and colleagues and also family play along your career journey? And what would be your advice to uh, our younger listeners and early career researchers? Yeah, well, I um, had an unusual variety of advisors. Some of them, um, the person I mentioned was named Sandy Hollingshead. There was another uh, prominent psychiatric epidemiologist at Yale named uh, Jerry Myers. But my, probably the people I learned the most from weren't in the uh, psychiatric or mental health area at all. They were students of 
law, criminology, and deviant behavior. So I've really been applying perspectives that I learned in an entirely different area to the study of mental health. So I guess the advice I might give is you know, not to be narrowly focused on just a, a, you know, a particular area, but see if perspectives from other areas can be helpful in illuminating whatever problems it is that you're studying. Oh, for sure, that's so crucial. So your latest book, The DSM, um, a History of Psychiatry's Bible. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it? Yeah, well, I really you know, came to write it, it as you know, I, I was saying earlier, in looking at you know, how the DSM has changed. The first edition arose in 1952, which was you know, shortly after the Second World War. And what had happened before the Second World War, the vast majority of psychiatric patients in the United States were in inpatient hospitals. They had either um, you know, serious psychoses, primarily schizophrenia. Also, many had um, you know, very serious problems with alcohol, um, that in the past they had had problems related to syphilis, but by that time really a uh, remedy for syphilis had been found. Um, but most of them had just such severe problems that they had to be hospitalized in inpatient institutions and there really were no good treatments for them. What happened was that during the war, there was a vast number of psychiatric casualties, but they arose among people, among you know, uh, soldiers who hadn't been mentally ill before. They didn't fit into the kinds of problems, you know, the hallucinations, delusions that marked inpatient populations. There was really no good way to categorize people who really became mentally ill as a result of a wartime combat. So the profession of psychiatry really realized that they needed a new diagnostic manual that could encompass a much, much broader range of problems than psychiatrists and other mental health professionals were used to seeing. So that really led to the emergence of the first edition of the DSM, which came to be called DSM-1. At the time, it was just called DSM. Um, and it was really noteworthy in a number of respects. First, it was a very small, um, little spiral bound manual. It had about in total, maybe 20 pages of descriptions of a little over a hundred different um, diagnoses, but these were often just a sentence or two. Um, they were not elaborated in any great detail. And in addition, many, probably even most of them were heavily influenced by psychoanalytic tenets. That is, they talked about more the meaning of symptoms and the causes of symptoms, but there wasn't very much at all about, well, how do you measure 
these symptoms. And at the time, that just wasn't very important. That diagnoses really didn't have much of a role to play in the mental health system. And that really lasted through the second edition of the DSM, which came out in 1968, 16 years later, which was in most ways, it had some changes from the first edition, but in most ways was very similar. It was still very uh, short, did not provide elaborate uh, diagnostic descriptions and largely maintained the psychoanalytic um, bent of the first manual. So at that time, and now we're into the late 1960s, the social matrix that surrounds psychiatry and the other mental health professions begins to change dramatically. And it changes for a variety of reasons. One has to do with the psychiatry comes under very serious attack in the broader culture. That is, uh, people like Thomas Zaz, who actually himself was a psychiatrist, but he really did not like his discipline, and wrote a very uh, well-known book called The Myth of Mental Illness, where Zaz says, there is no such thing as mental illness. Um, illness refers to some physical disease. Mental illness is not a physical disease. Therefore, there's no such thing as mental illness. Zaz was very, became very popular in the culture at large. Other people um, such as um, British psychiatrist R.D. Lying um, denied that even illnesses such as schizophrenia, um, which in the past had been just taken for granted that people had a mental illness, that those two um, were you know, rational ways to encounter the world and not mental diseases. People like Zaz and Lang were very popular in the culture. Um, you had say, movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which really portrayed psychiatrists as jailers much more than healers. The reputation of psychiatry is just getting to be terrible. So that's one major problem the profession is confronting in the late 1960s and the 1970s. A second problem that arises is really within uh, medical schools. That is that other um, medical fields, you know, surgery or um, nephrology, um, neurology are really advancing quite dramatically in their ability to define and to develop treatments for um, the, the physical illnesses that they are studying. Psychiatry isn't. It has um, you know, um, that psychoanalysis is the major form of the field at the time. It, you know, it interprets dreams, it talks about transference between patients and their therapists, it really seems to be very, very unscientific. 
So psychiatry's reputation is really plunging within the, you know, the medical field as well as in the general culture. So neither one of these things is, is very good, but it really gets worse. That is because in the, um, before really the um, 1970s, third party insurance, that is whether it's from insurance companies as it typically is in the United States or from the government, um, basically doesn't exist. Patients pay for their treatment out of their own pocket. So no third party insurer requires a diagnosis. But beginning in the 1960s and expanding greatly in the 1970s, the majority of patients begin to have to pay for their therapy through these third-party insurers, and they require some kind of a diagnosis. It became a financial necessity. But that's not all. Another uh, aspect, a totally different aspect, had to do with the drug, um, the drugs that psychiatrists were prescribing their patients. In the 1950s, Drugs became very popular, both the so-called minor tranquilizers, um, which became uh, you know, the extraordinarily popular Librium and Valium. These were prescribed pretty much across the board. It didn't matter what your problems were. If you had you know, feelings of anxiety, which were seen you know, very, very generally, or depression, you took a minor tranquilizer. Um, if you and at the same time, um, the, uh, really the first targeted treatments for inpatients became available at all um, as well. Thorazine um, was the most popular um, drug used to treat uh, schizophrenia. Uh, lithium um, became a very popular treatment for bipolar disorder. And the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, which regulates these drugs, says, well, look, uh, says to the drug companies, look, you can't just advertise your products for the relief of everyday problems. They have to target some specific disease. So this really forced drug companies and forced you know, psychiatric researchers who looked at um, at drugs to define problems as specific diagnoses. The old way of just looking at very general problems of living was not going to do anymore. So here's another reason. And just the final thing I'll mention that drove the um, psychiatric profession towards a new diagnostic system is in the United States, the National Institute of Mental Health is the major funder of psychiatric education and research. It was established right after the war in 1948 and had a very socially oriented focus. Its major purpose was to develop community treatments to replace the hospital treatments that had formerly dealt with most um, mentally ill people and became heavily involved in politically charged 
kinds of things to fight poverty, to fight racism. Um, and these became very controversial when there was a Republican administrations. Um, they didn't like the NIMH's social focus at all. So the um, NIMH, NIMH realizes, well, they're going to have to move away from this very broad social focus and develop a you know, system of that looks at specific diseases so that they can say psychiatry is a field that's really no different than other branches of medicine. We're going to become a real genuine medical specialty. So all of these factors really force psychiatry to develop a much more um, diagnostically oriented system. So DSM truly served several important needs, uh, just as you described. So who were figures behind it? So who are the people who started it and perhaps later players that contributed to its development? Yeah, well, um, in the case of the DSM, and now we're talking about the third edition, DSM-3, there's one overwhelmingly important figure. His name is Robert Spitzer. Spitzer was very interesting uh, person. He became really interested in psychiatry at a very young age. When he was a teenager, he was enthralled with Wilhelm Reich. Don't know if that's a familiar figure to your audience or not. Uh, Reich was um, started out as a fairly respectable psychiatrist and then developed just really far out theories about um, how sexual problems were at the root of all psychiatric problems. And they could be fixed by if people entered what Wright called an orgone box. And these um, orgone boxes supposedly would cure the sexual problem. So Spitzer was very enamored with that. He entered psychiatry. At first he was a psychoanalyst, but that just didn't um, suit his temperament. He became one of the original research-oriented psychiatrists and really scorned his, his earlier beliefs in you know, Reich's therapies and psychoanalysis and becomes determined to really put psychiatry on the same playing field as other medical specialties. Um, so at the time, psychiatric researchers, you know, there weren't a lot of them, but they were growing in power. And now we're talking about the 1970s. Um, Spitzer gets himself um, nominated you know, by the uh, American Psychiatric Association, their board of directors, they appoint him to head up the DSM-3. Um, and at the time, I mean, nobody took any note of this because nobody cared about the diagnostic manual. Spitzer was pretty much able to do whatever he wanted because no one else was concerned with diagnosis. So he you know, appointed his buddies, um, 
there weren't many research-oriented departments of psychiatry at that time. They were largely centered at Columbia University in New York, which is where Spitzer was, and Washington University in St. Louis, which had a number of um, research-oriented psychiatrists. So Spitzer pretty much um, exclusively filled the task force that was charged to develop the DSM-3 with all of his fellow researchers and really excluded the psychoanalysts who had really weren't interested in diagnoses. Um, and although they were far more numerous, especially in clinical practice. And so what you have in psychiatry at the time is a real divide between the clinicians, most of whom are psychoanalysts, who like to interpret the meaning of symptoms, they're dealing with individual patients, they're not very interested in research, they're not very interested in diagnoses, and you have a much smaller group of researchers who that's their major interest is to develop um, general diagnoses. They are scornful of psychoanalysis. Um, they really don't think much of it at all, but they're the ones who are almost exclusively developing the new manual of the DSM-3. So it's not until the manual is um, is getting finished, but um, it really begins, um, you know, the task force for DSM-3 begins around 1974, around 1978 or so, the, um, you know, the analysts and the clinicians sort of realize, hey, we just haven't been involved in this. This might be a major change that's going to affect us. And it's serious political infighting um, you know, begins at that time. But it's really not a level playing field because the entire DSM task force is basically researchers. And when the manual finally comes out in 1980, it's about as far from a psychoanalytically oriented manual as is possible. The DSM-3 completely excludes all references to theory. And since the DSM-1 and 2 were you know, quite heavily psychoanalytically um, you know, oriented, that means psychoanalysis is pretty much excluded from um, the diagnostic system. Um, and the system itself is totally different. It's completely composed of observable symptoms. And so um, for depression, you have a list, say, of um, you need to have you know, four of 10 symptoms. If you have, I'm sorry, it's five of 10 symptoms. If you have four of those symptoms, you don't have major depression. So that it's a categorical diagnosis. You have it or you don't. The meaning of symptoms, which most clinicians, that's what they're interested in, is, you know, how do symptoms, you know, how do they arise? How do they fit into a patient's life? Clinical intuition, clinical interpretation is irrelevant 
in the DSM-3. So the DSM-3 marks a total change in the way the field of psychiatry is looking at um, mental illnesses, you know, from very um, theoretical orientation, very clinical orientation, to a um, very measurable and specific orientation. Um, and so now, beginning in 1980, you have psychiatry has an entirely new diagnostic system. There's one big, big problem that it is designed to be easily measurable, easily used, um, and it's expected to allow psych research psychiatrists to come to understand the causes of the various mental illnesses. And now there's you know, well over 300 of them in the, over, around 300 of them in the DSM-3, far more than in the DSM-1 and 2. They're expected to lead to better treatments for these illnesses. But the real problem is the DSM-3 diagnoses weren't based on any real body of evidence because there was only you know, a small amount of studies that the developers of the DSM-3 could use. And there wasn't, they yielded different um, results. There wasn't consensus on these diagnoses. You have a manual that's now, built to be extremely specific, but yet there's just not very much evidence. It's really built on quicksand. Um, but nevertheless, it's seen as a huge advance for psychiatry. This manual, the DSM-3, is going to make psychiatry a science. It's going to raise its prestige in medical schools, it's going to you know, allow um, clinicians, not just researchers, to get reimbursed for treatment from insurers. Um, it gets NIMH out of their political difficulties because now they're dealing with you know, a you know, scientific profession and not with um, you know, socio-political problems. It, the, Drug companies love it because now they have a whole range of very specific targets for their products to deal with. And there's a huge spirit of optimism in not just psychiatry, but in all of the related mental health fields. And finally, the problems of the mental health professions have been solved and in just a few years, we will be making all of these amazing discoveries that will probably, although the DSM-3 itself does not um, assume a biological orientation, but that at the same time all this is happening, you have all these um, you know, new technologies that for the first time are allowing researchers to view the brain that um, just tremendous you know, understandings are expected to develop in forthcoming years. So that um, 
in sort of the the vibes around the DSM three. It's truly fascinating how this volume has been evolving during all this time in response to scientific research, but also so the societal factors, hasn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I think the major um, thesis of you know, my book is that it's really the societal factors that are probably the most important in shaping the manual. And they become even more important, you know, the DSM-3 goes into several um, further revisions. You have the DSM-3R, R stands for revised, that comes out in 1986. You have the DSM-4, which comes out in 1994. Um, these, you know, did have you know, within the DSM-3 paradigm, you had some um, significant changes, but for the most part, did not alter the major um, assumptions of the, um, the mental health field. But, so, but then towards the end of the 1990s, it's researchers, are beginning to become really uneasy with the entire diagnostic classification because they're not finding any genes, you know, either um, groups of genes or specific genes that just you know, none have been uncovered for any of the DSM's um, conditions that it's becoming apparent that the nature of mental illnesses, you know, are not as nearly as specific as the DSM-3 assumptions um, would, would have it, that um, there's just no progress in the field. And here's where what I find to be the most fascinating part of the saga of the DSM is that you know around the turn you know of the um, 21st century, it's now researchers that are leading the charge to completely overturn the same manual that they were responsible for establishing. And meanwhile, the clinicians who initially had completely opposed the DSM, it was just a completely alien form of thinking for them. But they've gotten used to this manual. They probably don't really believe in the various categories, you know, the different anxiety disorders, the major depressive disorders, um, you know, bipolar disorders, but, this gives them a way to bill for their services. So they, you know, they can put the DSM diagnosis down when they're filling out their um, insurance forms. It serves administrative purposes just fine for them. And they don't, you know, they don't have to think that these you know, truly represent 
um, the problems that their patients have because they can deal with their patients just as they always have, you know, listening to their problems, trying to uncover the meaning of their symptoms. Um, so that clinicians are quite happy with the existing DSM, which at that time would have been DSM-4. Um, so you have the DSM-5, which really you know, starts to get underway in the early years of the 21st century. It takes a, a good while. It doesn't come out until 2013. But the political dynamics are almost exactly the opposite of what they were in the DSM-3. You have the researchers now who are trying to overthrow the diagnostic system that they had originally established. And you have the clinicians who are defending the um, existing um, diagnoses. So you have just tremendous battles between the, you know, as you did in the DSM-3, but the sides have reversed themselves. The clinicians are defending the manual and the researchers are trying to overturn it. So the politics here are, at least to me, um, truly fascinating. Yeah, it sounds like a proper battleground. <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, and well, ultimately, what happens is the um, researchers were trying to institute a what they called a paradigm change, a completely new diagnostic system after realizing that they couldn't base this new system on biological findings or genetic findings or neuroscientific findings because the, um, the knowledge just wasn't there. But they decided then to make what's called a dimensional system at the heart of their efforts to overthrow the DSM. That is dimensions really um, view mental illnesses not as categories, that is not as either or, you either have a condition or you don't have a condition. Rather, it's, well, you might have a little bit of the condition or maybe a medium amount or a serious condition, but it's more of a continuum. You might say it's just like, say, blood pressure, where there's not a sharp division between you know, high blood pressure and low blood pressure. Rather, it's a gradation. So they start to view mental illnesses in this way, which is totally different from the categorical um, either or um, DSM diagnosis. So they try to implement a dimensional system. And here you have a whole new factor coming in and which is psychologists. And psychologists really were not very heavily involved in previous um, efforts in the, the DSM. Just their way of thinking, they're far more quantitative than psychiatrists are. Um, they rarely do their research in clinical settings. They're much more likely to use you know, untreated populations they use methods such as factor analysis that are extremely rare in psychiatry. But psychiatrists says, hmm, maybe we should you know, invite these psychologists into the revision um, 
you know, of the DSM, and they become really quite prominent. And many of the proposals for the DSM-5 were really almost more psychologically influenced than um, uh, traditional psychiatric categories of health and disease. Um, but when they um, give, finally develop these dimensional proposals, they're extremely complex. They really would require someone, um, a typical you know, clinician to have far more statistical knowledge than almost all you know, would have had that clinicians don't find these dimensional measures easy to use. They really don't have the knowledge to use them. They don't see how they're going to help them understand their patients at all. Um, and they ultimately what happens is that these dimensional proposals get thoroughly rejected by the American Psychiatric Association, um, which actually um, you know, has votes on the, the DSM. And it turns out, um, and this is a truly remarkable result, I think, that the DSM-5 turns out to be almost identical to the DSM-4, which was in turn very similar to the DSM-3. So the volume that finally comes out after a decade of sharp political um, conflicts is very little changed from the previous DSMs. So what you have and you know, now is a volume, the DSM, that's been deeply discredited. That is, researchers no longer believe in the conditions, you know, the you know, several hundred conditions in, in the uh, diagnostic manual. The clinicians never really um, believed in them, but they have to use them just for instrumental purposes. So, but the DSM, you know, lives on and it's completely institutionalized. You see, at least in the United States, um, where you have say direct to consumer drug advertising and that uses the DSM, you know, social anxiety or you know, major depression or generalized anxiety disorder um, that um, really ha now have no credence among psychiatric researchers or clinicians, but nevertheless, it lives on and has become impervious to change for the time being. Um, and so the current state of the diagnostic manual is um, pretty much unchanged from 1980, even though nobody really believes in it anymore. So I think this, to me, this is a fascinating situation. Yes, for sure. So with the reflection to all of this history, in your opinion, what are the implications of having such a manual for the wider society? Do you think it's necessary? Um, well, I do think it's necessary because, I mean, psychiatry is a branch of medicine. 
medicine deals with diseases. It's just so deeply ingrained um, in thinking that this notion of health and disease. I think the notion of dimensions just was never going to play in the society at large. That is, in people now think so much. I mean, it's not just mental health professionals. It's um, things such as you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, autism, um, ADHD, attention deficit um, hyperactivity disorder. These are so thoroughly ingrained in the culture. They all have their own constituency that the psychiatric diagnoses, which say when you had the anti-psychiatry movement in the 1960s, you know, saw them as you know, highly negative, stigmatizing um, sorts of things that now uh, many diagnoses are highly valued. That is so, that's when in the DSM-5, one of the particular efforts was trying to really change the um, autistic spectrum you had parents up in arms because they were afraid that their children were going to lose diagnoses, of which brought about um, you know, treatment for their, their kids and other sorts of research um, resources. Um, you have, um, you know, in, in other um, areas, say uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, now is deeply entrenched as a almost an expectable reaction to trauma and you know that too can take blame away from people it's not a stigmatized um you know disorder that the whole value connotations of many psychiatric diagnoses have really been transformed so that they're and highly valued commodities one of the most interesting um, examples of this is something called gender dysphoria. That is when people believe that they're you know, truly uh, of the gender that, that's not the one that their, you know, their own um, sexual organs um, would seem to indicate they are. That in the past, LGBT organizations have you know, opposed the diagnosis originally of homosexuality, which wasn't removed from the DSM until 1973. But then in the DSM-5 deliberations, that these same LGBT organizations were the most fervent defenders of the gender dysphoria diagnosis. Of course, it wasn't because they thought it's really people with gender dysphoria are mentally ill. They don't believe that, but they have to consider them as such if they're going to have a diagnosis that will pay for gender transition surgery. So it's you know, another just interesting example of you know, how you know, politics plays a huge role and how the value of psychiatric diagnoses have really changed over the course of the DSM era.
So what discoveries about yourself and society along your journey to writing your book, DSM, A History of Psychiatry's Bible, surprised you the most? Um, well, I think I would say probably the most surprising thing was I really hadn't been aware of how I mean, I did know, you know the, how the psychiatric researchers were the ones responsible for developing the DSM-3. I was not aware of how deeply they came to, to discredit this manual, to think that there's just um, almost nothing useful about the current manual, even though they can't now, at least publicly, say that. Um, um, it would just put the profession in a completely unsustainable um, political situation. So they have to sort of kind of defend the manual while at the same time having you know, totally delegitimized um, that. And I guess from the point of view of clinicians, how deeply, well, not really ambivalent, how clinicians never really believed in the reality of the DSM diagnoses, but nevertheless, they need them, certainly in the United States more so than in countries that have, say, national health insurance, because they have to put a some diagnostic code in, in order to get paid for their treatments. You know, so just how much the uh, practice, mental health practice and mental health rhetoric uh, d differ from each other. It's just such a false front that people are putting forward. And during your research, how did you prevent yourself from self-diagnosing virtually every condition mentioned in the manual and all of its iterations as well? Yeah, well, that actually was not a problem because <laughs> um, if you think that these, the whole diagnostic system is pretty much built on quicksand that um, you're not going to take it very seriously. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> so we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Yeah, well, I'm currently working on a somewhat similar book to the DSM history, but it's specifically about the personality disorders. So it doesn't have a title yet, but it's about the um, single class of you know, personality disorders, um, borderline personality, narcissistic personality, um, antisocial personality. There's actually 11 specific conditions. Those three are probably the best known. Um, and the personality disorders, I think, are especially interesting because at least you can try and attempt to mold symptom-based conditions, that is things like depression, like 
anxiety, like PTSD, like schizophrenia, into some sort of legitimate medical conceptions. Um, personality disorders are problematic for sure. I mean, that um, they can get people into all sorts of interpersonal and legal um, problems, but there's just nothing medical about them. So I'm looking at the ways in which these kinds of you know, general ways of living that really refer more to how a person is, their essential characteristics, not what diseases they have, um, and how psychiatry has formulated them over the, the years. So that's the current project. Um, Oh, that sounds super interesting. Hopefully you can come and talk to us about it when it's done. Well, I, I would love to. Um, and then you also ask about what's next. And here I just have some very general, vague ideas. And these revolve around almost the um, impossible profession of psychiatry, which not just psychiatry, but mental health professions, where just one very basic level, they're about you know, intuition, about you know, a clinician looking at a particular patient, trying to interpret their life stories, that they have, they're really much more like a humanistic and intuitive field. But yet, in our current, you know, in the 21st century, the only thing that gets respect is science. You have to portray um, the mental health fields as scientific disciplines, which is just not really what they do. So it would be looking at this basic contradiction between you know, trying to understand a particular person, which is what clinicians attempt to do, but um, develop general laws that uh, you know, refer to um, entire, uh, to everyone, and that don't um, reside on intuition, that don't depend on any you know, individual's perspective. Um, and it's almost, I think, an impossible contradiction to overcome, but I haven't written a word of that yet. Excellent. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Um, well, certainly one place that, um, um, that is certainly easy to get is Amazon. We'd have information on uh, you know, several of the books I've written. Most of uh, my books have either been with you know, Oxford University Press, where, um, you know, which would have um, more information, or Johns Hopkins University Press. The DSM book is with Johns Hopkins. Certainly their website would also have information on um, you know, on that book, I've also written a book on anxiety and a book on PTSD for Johns Hopkins University Press. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me today and giving us a glimpse into this exhilarating story. Oh, well, it was a great, a great pleasure. I hope that uh, we'll be speaking again.